Hello, All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, Misha. How are you? Good, good. So far. <laughs> Ready to talk about the weekly hospitality news? Most certainly. Our Amazing. second time now. Yes. Let's see if we can upload it this time. <laughs> so for those of you who are coming in to listen on our podcast, this is our second episode. And uh, we, what we do basically is talk about hospitality news once a week. Uh, everything from direct hospitality news from the industry and the service sector to down to geopolitics and uh, nitty gritty stuff like the academic world and you know all the wonderful stuff that people might miss otherwise. Exactly. Everything which is relevant for the hospitality industry. I mean, I think we should start and dive right in with one of our first topics, which is called REPCAR or revenue per square meter. And I mean, I'm newly a hospitality broker. And when I studied hospitality management, we always speak about revenue per available room. And now suddenly many industry specialists say we should use revenue per square meter. So Mish, what exactly is the difference? I mean, to me, this was uh, quite an interesting set of news because I assumed that people did do that uh, since I come from the real estate sector. Um, the ref bar itself uh, basically excludes any side additional income. It um, excludes anything like F&B or perhaps um, any tour operator stuff that you're organizing, right? So for a, an actual real estate developer, the standard formula was always, you. I'll give you 1,000 square meters you will make the X amount of money, you split that by square meter, how much do you make per square meter? And then any developer, any owner, basically will choose the, the, the operator that will make the most amount of money per square meter, uh, right? Uh, with the least amount of risk, obviously. And uh, I guess this is forcing the industry to, to, <laughs> to think like the rest of us <laughs> and make sure that um, they are competing. And, uh, exactly. And I think it's really interesting, right, for everybody who works in hospitality, no matter what, in what position they're working in, that it actually really matters how you utilize your space. Um, because, yeah, hospitality is very much a real estate um, mm -hmm. industry as well. So I thought, I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, news because I always focus on that. It's quite fascinating to me that this was the actually the case because, I mean, you had this conversation about six months ago. We did. We did. Um, I, I guess that's why I kind of love the news because it was, exa it was exactly what you said. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. So how about the next um, topic? Also very, very interesting, I think, for people who um, work in the hospitality investment sector. Um, some people predict um, a gap between supply and demand, meaning that there is going to be a smaller supply, uh, hence uh, demand is going to be increasing due to the COVID, um, the COVID pandemic. And during the pandemic, some of the hotels got stuck in the pipeline. And now with the problems in the supply chain to build new projects, some of the new new builds or forwards um, weren't able to be realized. So um, some industry specialists say that in the future, 
in about two, three years, there might be a shortage of um, hotels, especially distinctive concepts. What do you think, Michel? Is that true? or This is going strongly against um, the other part of news that we dug up this week, that Airbnbs are underperforming across all of the United States. There's less reservations, there's less travelers, and also on top of that, um, there is more regulations now for Airbnbs, so they're also closing them down. Um, but then that's not against it, right? Because if we have regulations for Airbnbs, then supply might get even smaller, so the demand for hotels is going to increase even more because they have to decrease the demand and the supply for... But, for but this is... This is going from the assumption that the revenue and the people traveling is going to keep growing. Mm. And uh, if, <laughs> if we have read anything at all for the past four weeks is that uh, the news are not so positive on the financial performance of anything upcoming. And um, tourism and sort of travel, leisure travel kind of is the first thing to go. And uh, as we discussed last episode, um, it might be that people had a bit of a revenge travel period but actually their savings are now dwindling. There's more bankruptcies going on. Banks are shutting down. So uh, it could have been a good thing, especially for those uh, existing hotels where there's less competition to compete over potentially a less, <laughs> a smaller demand market. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Uh, this is definitely one of those positive news. Everything is great, yet uh, maybe not so much. So I do not believe that... Um there's going to be a shortage of supply for hotels? Like I said, right, it's a supply and the demand curve. If uh, there's a shortage of supply, that means there is too much demand. But if we have too much demand, if we have no demand, there is no shortage of supply. Agreed. Okay, I get, I get, your, I get what you're saying. I mean, it always depends, right? There's another element to that uh, news article also that um, investors are more and more looking for distinct... Um, investments let's say not the typical um egypt sounds um uh, but creative. i like, <laughs> I I like how you whispered that <laughs> i like how you whispered that chain <laughs> yes um i mean it's it's a cash cow right it works it's a, it's a it's the model that works but i wouldn't say it's one of the most innovative most innovative concepts um in that sense um, so yeah. true true i agree the demand has, at least that article says that demand for distinctive concept has increased. Everybody has creative ideas. You're coming from a from a, a real estate sector yourself in a way, right? You you are participating in a lot of the the brokerage stuff. Um, wouldn't you say that uh, people often live within the next three months? Do people connected? live within the next three months? Um, yes and no. I think everybody tries to predict what's going to happen within the next six and months and next year, but uh, we just all don't know. So because, they, <laughs> because they're using the data that is from this particular week. <laughs> so exactly. Maybe. And what happened in 2019, because everything after 2019 you cannot use because of yeah. COVID, so the numbers are not reliable. So yeah, it's very, very interesting right now. Um, but I find it interesting that we have yeah, different signals. We'll see. We'll see how it goes, right? We, we always post on our weekly blog that um, weekly newsletter that uh, only time will show because everything yeah. else is just speculation. Exactly. Exactly. And another news that is, is very much 
present is the green, green, green ESG topic. Um, there has been um, the Global Hotel Alliance has launched the Green Collection, um, where they have selected, I think, around 200 hotels, which have all different types of ESG um, certificates. So users can actually book specialty hotels um, which fulfill ESG criteria. Um, do you think launching something like that makes sense? I mean, I was reading it, and in my head I was like, well, you know, you could just add a filter at OTAs, whether which ESG certificate you have, and then people could select it if it is appropriate to them. We, we actually talked about it before. Uh, Booking.com has a uh, program where they certify hotels as sustainable through some sort of their own filtration system. Um, also, on top of that, we saw a few weeks ago, there's, there's been data showing that people care about sustainability more. But to me, so obviously people are making choices now based on, on this, right? I personally, from my subjective perspective, perhaps I'm not the best, but the statistics says that, yes, this is important. And therefore, even such a big alliance is uh, also making decisions now based on of this, right? So... Uh, this is definitely becoming a, a part of the culture. Uh, my only worry is that uh, when people are unemployed, <laughs> going back to the wonderful topic from the previous theme, I don't think they will care much. This is the privilege of those who are doing well. And, uh, you think? Those... I, I generally believe that people start caring more and more and more, and especially from both sides as well. I mean, um, there was a meeting in Cannes a few weeks ago and pretty much the topic is that most um, bonds now have requirements to invest in the ESG friendly um, projects so it actually comes from both sides it comes from investor side and or investment side as well as from the consumer side because you that I mean according to the WTTC 69% of all travelers um, care about reducing their carbon footprint that that is correct, right? But um, like I said, as we talked about before, there is a supply side of things, which is the investors, and they are showing that they care. There is the the supply, the the alliance, hotel alliance, and then there is the demand. And um, if we have demand worrying about every penny, which they might be doing for the next coming two three years, then for them, whether this is the property sustainable or not, is rather uh, the last of their problems. Rather, can they actually afford this property? So, you know, sort of going down to the Maslow Pyramid, if you, if you are doing really well and everything is uh, really nice, then yes, you care about sustainability, I think, at this point, finally. But um, it might be that um, most people will fall down that pyramid in the coming few years, unfortunately. Mm, travel would be one of the things that would go, or people start traveling closer, not too far away, which would actually be good. We've seen that trend from the corona period, right? So people are actually, and Airbnb, that's why Airbnb is redoing the entire uh, categories for, for the what you can book. So yes, people are indeed doing that. because they, But traveling Airbnb. closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does Airbnb do? Airbnb do? I didn't understand. We've seen um, in the past few articles that Airbnb is, uh, they've created 26 new categories for what you can book. And they also are trying to heavily advertise uh, and indicate to people Basically, hey, you can check out this thing out in the next hundred kilometers next year. 
because they saw that during Corona period and still people are actually doing this kind of travel way more than they did before. Because they finally discovered, oh, wait, I don't actually have to travel for 36 hours to Bali. And I can actually go to somewhere close by, maybe pay even not so much more and uh, enjoy it just as much. And it's more sustainable as well. So actually, definitely an industry industry trend, I would say. Agree to disagree. Why? <laughs> no, no. I, that's, I, that's what you just said. Like, how, no, how can you disagree with what you just said? I, I what I'm saying is people are I think are making decisions based off uh, something else, right? They they they're not really saying, oh, I want to be sustainable, therefore I want to travel somewhere 100 kilometers next to me. Rather, oh wait, Corona period forced me to check things out close by. Oh wait, there is actually nice stuff there. Cool. They're not. I don't think the average uh, person out there is trying to make decisions based on sustainability personally. But as I've said, we've. As I've said, uh, we've seen a survey now from Kayak, right, where from 10,000 people surveyed, 85% said that they will be thinking of sustainability factors when they make the next choice of destination. So I'm, I think I'm, uh, I can safely say that I'm wrong. <laughs> All right. Sure, sure, sure. So then that already brings us to our next topic, which is um, Airbnb in the U.S. This is a drop of reservations across the board. I think we already spoke about that um, that quickly. I mean, in Europe, they already, or in Europe, cities already started to make regulations for Airbnb. For a while now. Exactly. And now it just started in the U.S. Do you have an idea why it came so late in the U.S.? or? It, it was making me think that um, this is potentially political. Um, <clears throat> if you check out one of our sources, um, it lists the fact that uh, the housing prices are going up. There is little amount of houses now. There is also the element of going up, interest rates going up, yet people still want to buy houses. There's still demand. And obviously, this is creating a political issue. People are not happy that they cannot find a place. And, well, one of the easiest things or one of the easiest birds to hit with one stone is, the, in this case, Airbnb, as it's shown multiple times that the presence of Airbnb has actually grown, increased the average real estate prices, and it has actually removed significant amount of inventory from the market. So um, I think the, the US has uh, started to care because the financial crisis is hitting and it's actually impacting their lives. Uh, in Europe, this was happening for a while. Uh, but I guess in the US, they didn't have that issue before. Since you and how do you got... think... Sorry, didn't mean to keep... Go ahead. And how do you think... Um, I mean, Airbnb says, okay, you can... They added 26 new categories. What else are they going to do to, you know, survive? I mean, if they're being regulated in all over the world now, what actions are they taking? I mean, it's just... <laughs> I think the topic of this this week's podcast is definitely supply and demand because um, people definitely want to still buy apartments and rent them out. And no matter how much the big cities try to regulate it, there is plenty of suburban areas and city places where you can trick the system and there is no deregulation. And it's quite obvious that uh, an Airbnb uh, business is one that is definitely profitable, right? It is almost a... a um, a like a 
myth that uh, you you know how do you retire? Well, you buy three apartments, you put them on Airbnb, and all you have to make sure is that they're clean after they somebody stays there. So that is definitely not going away. It's just a question of the market the, um, stabilizing, perhaps. Also, as it's as the article says, there's actually less travel now. So um, people on Airbnbs are currently staying in less amount of Airbnbs as they did before, which is potentially an indicator of the financial crisis. So I think this will be a, an endless game of supply and demand going up and down all the times. And maybe, maybe uh, we, I think US is also pretty famous for lobbying <laughs> versus sure. let's say Europe. So sure. uh, we will definitely see some cases of uh, uh, businesses uh, like Airbnb, maybe potentially financing a, a lobbying round to make sure that uh, they get more access to, to real estate. Yeah, but, um, I also read in another article that they're looking for other revenue streams because I mean, right. They are, they are offering uh, travel, right. They're traveling, offering experiences now, I think they're offering regular hotels. We'll see. Um, but I think the core business and that's what everybody knows Airbnb for is small B and B's. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's a dynamic company, so I'm pretty sure they're also thinking of, um, yeah revenue streams which i think is, is interesting how a company keeps itself alive keeps itself alive so let's keep it uh let's uh, look at it at the closer a bit closer in the coming months see what they're doing i think uh, also given that their stock price has actually not fallen yet so the investors are pretty confident in their performance even though there's a lot of takedowns now happening across all of the us which is their major the most important market that they have but I mean, people are generally not really like much at the moment, no? From what I have understood, <laughs> they're holding and hoping it's going to go up again. Um, That's true. Everybody is very optimistic about their future. <laughs> Everybody's the holding on. They're <laughs> holding on to their stock. Um, I mean, kind of that moves us along to to the next topic, which is externalities and you know what's going on in the world which brings us back to the the China Russia Brazil topic. I mean, that was that's that was big news that um, yeah, that they want to start trading um, stop trading over the US dollar pretty much in in Brazil. How do you think that is going to impact the hospitality industry? I think this this to me put the last puzzle piece uh, in place because last week's news was that China is meeting, you know, that Deng Xiaoping is mix, mix, uh, meeting uh, Putin and organizing uh, various kinds of deals. And that was obviously pushing away the Western world, right? If you, if you these days talk to Putin, then you're, on, uh, you're kind of automatically becoming part of the sanctioned list. Um, so it didn't make sense to me at that point. But I think given the news this week, uh, things are really coming into place because China is obviously planning to basically cut itself off from perhaps anything US, whether it is uh, they're planning to have a, you know, a trade war, which is already happening, right? But uh, what the most important thing is they now have control, political control and probably geopolitical control over Russia, meaning they have access to one of the highest amount of resources that our planet has, both in water, food, uh, oil, etc. Yet at the same time, they I think they believe that they have the strong enough internal market to 
to not have to be reliant on outside import-export relationships. So I mean, this is basically maybe a step uh, towards becoming an independent superpower and telling to the US, we don't need you anymore. Whether that's going to work or not is a different thing, but uh, it sure looks like China is making some moves here. And as we've seen in, uh, in the next uh, piece of news, US isn't really uh, worried about it either since they are fully trying to cut China off as well. It's just kind of a, a mutual cut of a divorce, let's put it this way. Clear, clear cut of line and move to, to independence on both sides. I mean, Russia, Russian-Chinese alliance is strong as they come, let's say it this way. So, um, yeah, interesting. And I mean, the big, I mean, the news that we have listed here is the, the news about Brazil, that China wants to trade directly with Brazil without the US dollar. Um, I mean, you know, me, I was automatically, oh, like, how, how would that be implemented? And, you know, <laughs> how would that impact uh, Brazil in, you know, uh, the US as well? I mean, before, I guess it also will impact the US a lot if suddenly a big part of the dollar is not traded in between Brazil and China anymore. No. It, it, the question is indeed whether this is actually possible and not only for us but rather for brazil itself um, if we look at brazilian import export relationships us is really high up there and uh, cutting that off will not necessarily benefit brazil but maybe not will not damage um, us either as much and um, we can what we could definitely say is us is in itself contained uh, market where there is enough uh, buying force, there is enough production power inside the country. So Brazil definitely needs U.S. more than U.S. needs Brazil. Uh, but I suppose they are relying now on China becoming their big partner. So whatever this is, is going to take a long time to unfold. Or the local governments just cut the cord uh, and then the regular folk lose their jobs, lose their buying power and for the next 10 years fall into a crisis until things stabilize again. That depends on what the government the governments of those countries will decide. Something tells me they will not go for the 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 people friendly solutions. I mean, yeah, it would impact Brazil humongously. I was just thinking on how it would impact tourism, but I guess it would just yeah, it would impact completely the whole the whole country enormously import export. Let's imagine. Let's imagine you, Brazil. I think is a major exporter of chicken, chicken meat. Great. Uh, so they export chicken meat. That's good for them. But they are probably a really big importer for of technology. And uh, if all of a sudden they have to buy Chinese technology, it's not necessarily better for them. Uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily going to be done on terms that are going to be preferable for Brazil. Uh, if if we remember what 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 China is doing across the whole world is they come to a specific country, they provide a or they pitch for a project, let's say building a nuclear power plant. They a Chinese company comes to to Brazil, they actually build the the, the atomic power plant, while the Chinese government actually gives and loans money to the Brazilian government to pay for that atomic power plant and then that atomic power plant is owned by a chinese company that is then selling electricity to brazil now 
that this doesn't sound to me like a win-win relationship, but rather a, a full codependence relationship that Brazil is actively jumping into. Uh, whether they, they are aware of that or not, uh, it's a different question, or maybe they are fully aware and uh, indeed breaching this. Um, what I can definitely say is, from, from my little knowledge of the situation, um, perhaps working with, with, with US on, on this kind of things perhaps would be a bit more long-term than, than the Chinese way of doing things. I mean, yeah, very, very, very interesting. I think this whole, it's a very political, everything kind of links together again, or I feel like it has a big impact on what is happening in the world in general. Um, Most definitely. You also touched on the next topic, which is about middle-income countries. And you pretty much say if you're in the middle income countries, you're never making it into the first world countries. That's what I, <laughs> what I pretty much read from, from your news. Um, so for example, can you give me an example who is a middle income country in, in your point of view? Russia is the best example. Russia, Philippines, or any, any country you think of that isn't too poor yet is not, um, uh, it's been there for a while, let's say since the 60s. Argentina, Brazil, all those wonderful countries. Okay, and you um, Well, let's put it this way, I don't. <laughs> uh, but um, what The Economist has published is a very interesting study that basically looks at all these different countries and sees how they grow or they change you know, within the sort of club of uh, GDP per capita or how much money is there per person in a, in a certain country. And very few countries managed to to actually have escaped the sort of the middle ground where you're sort of right there in the middle and you're not too poor, you're not too rich. Um, and most of the countries kind of have stayed and stagnated in that period, in, in, that, in that section there. Now, why it isn't really part of this article? That's what I, um, I've, that's why we added uh, a book called How Asia Works, which might elaborate on that a little bit more. But the interesting part is just the fact that the observations that almost since the 60s, the people, the countries that were in those clubs haven't really changed. And feel free to look, click on the article, check, check it out. Um, the book itself, uh, perhaps from my perspective, gives a bit of an insight. Um, but it's a very, very long explanation, let's put it this way. In short, if we're trying to summarize in the spirit of this, of this uh, newsletter, there is good economic reform and this bad economic reform and uh, good economic reform has to be done in steps at certain periods of your development and if you skip a step you will forever have that underdeveloped section of your economy struggling so uh, the, the, the by the book growth means what you start with um, with the Asian countries so northern Asian countries did like China Japan Korea is provide a very sophisticated agricultural reform uh, so, for example, Japan um, limited. So they've taken away, they've taken a lot of the land, privatized. They sort of took it away from the from several, let's say, warlords, and then uh, privatized it again and spread it across thousands and I would say millions of farmers. So everybody could have a maximum of four acres of land, right? And as a result, then provided financial resources and loans and simple government support, given that you have high yield of whatever crop you're growing. And uh, this created basically a very, very self-sufficient, 
layer of uh, agricultural economy where people, well, first of all, the country became sustainable in their production of food, and it actually created a, a what one of the first layers of people who are well off, who send their kids to school, who well, who could actually work, and then you know go outside of work and relax and spend their money and so on and so forth. And this is one of the first basic steps that the country has to do. And several countries, like the Philippines, just have completely skipped that step. And what they have in the return done is basically um, forced, uh, well, fake, created a fake sort of a good-looking economic reform. They said they will do the same things as Japan and Korea will do. But what ended up happening 10, 20 years later is this huge owners, these three, four families that own, let's say, 100,000 acres of land. And in situations like this, uh, this, 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 uh, it didn't create a layer of a population that is self-sustainable, has their job, can um, can actually provide uh, input into the economy, and also pay. And their gener- generation, those kids from those uh, from that population, can actually contribute and grow and you know become the next step, which is the industrialization. So it's it's a complicated array of things, but effectively, if you want, if you are a poor country, what you have to do is what Germany did actually in the nineteenth century, and a few other countries. You first support your agriculture, then you go into the industrialization, and you create tariffs and protect your industrial sector, and you force them to export. So you force them to to try to sell their products and actually make it viable, and then you move on to the next step, which is kind of the first world, where you start providing services, tech 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 product, and so on and so forth. But this this requires quite a lot of extensive um, economic um, change and political change and legal change and creating systems in place that a lot of government governments and countries just never have done. Corruption still rampant and so on and so forth. This could be it, I feel like. So if you if you want to look into this book yourself, uh, I think it answers perhaps why certain countries are definitely not going anywhere anytime soon in their growth. I did definitely learn something. <laughs> I always I was always good in history and economics and stuff that I never made that connect, connection. So um really really interesting and actually we've reached our 30 minute mark for this podcast i mean we left out the tips and tricks of the sauce tools and the book recommendation but i think it's important that people would go and have a look at the newsletter as well so yeah thank you so much for that conversation it thank you very- flew by very quickly Thank you very much, Miriam. And for those of you who will try to look, the, try to find the first episode, it exists, but it unfortunately doesn't sound that good as any first podcast that we, it didn't work out with us. But expect um, a podcast every week from us, summarizing what we have uh, put in written form on our uh, <coughs> website, leprosy.substack.com. And uh, in the future, we will definitely improve our audio file quality and everything else for sure as well. Until next time. Bye-bye.